Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the multi-hemispherical podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, bobbing for apples in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, buying three blocks of chocolate for Halloween, only to eat them all myself in Melbourne, Australia. (laughs) So true. We focus on fantastical cinema, sci-fi, horror and fantasy for the most part because we love purple potions of eternal youth, injuries that defy science and zombies duelling with shovels. Mm, yes, I'm a fan. <laughs> Happy Halloween, Dan. How are you? Ah, yes, good in the spirit of things. But alas, in Australia, we don't really celebrate Halloween. Um, no? <laughs> but I hope everyone else is decorating their houses appropriately. So that's it's not a big thing over there? You don't get trick-or-treaters or anything? Uh, occasionally, but it's definitely not the public holiday it seems to be in America. Oh, we still have a fairly good sort of turnout for Halloween here. We usually have a few kids come to the door, which is great. But yes, I always buy far too much chocolate and then end up eating it all myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is the reason for Halloween, isn't it? I think it is, yeah. Secretly, that's really why we do it. Well, Conrad, anything in the mailbag the spooky season? We do. We have some feedback on the film in our previous episode, Sunshine. Daniel Diosdado says, It's a great film. I love it. And Graffiti JT says, Cracking film. Get it rescued from the oubliette at once. So lots of sunshine love out there. Yeah, it's a great film. It is, yes. I don't think it was ever in any doubt that it would end up being rescued, (laughs) really. And even more excitingly, we also had some feedback from Karen Walton, the writer of Ginger Snaps ah. from episode 37. Yes. Yes, I tweeted out the soundbite where we were talking about Baxter, the dog that gets killed at the very beginning mm. of the movie. <laughs> Horrifying, yes. How uncomfortable it was because of your dog being called Baxter. Mm-hmm. And Karen says, could your Baxter and Bailey Downs's Baxter be twinsy namesakes of this Baxter? And she tweeted a picture of a French horror film from 1989 called Baxter about a murderous white bull terrier. Whoa, okay. Uh, no, I have not seen that film. <laughs> no, I did not know that there was a horror movie called Baxter. I wonder if it's a reference in Ginger Snaps to that Baxter. Who oh, knows? maybe, maybe. It could be, but that must be festering in the oubliette somewhere. Buried himself in a hole down there. Mm. Maybe I'll check while I open up the oubliette to see what's in it for today. (gasps) Wow. Very luxurious in there today. Oh, oh yeah. What do you see? There's a swimming pool with a naked woman in it and she's surrounded by Fabios. (laughs) Oh, hunky. Mm -hmm. Here's a movie. (gasps) (laughs) Okay, here we are. What do you have, Conrad? 
So today I have Death Becomes Her, a 1992 black comedy horror fantasy directed by Robert Zemeckis, written by David Kep and Martin Donovan. Ah, Robert Zemeckis, director of Back to the Future and Forrest Gump. Mm. It focuses on the lifelong feud between Madeline, a shallow narcissistic actress played by multi-Oscar winner Meryl Streep, and her wallflower friend, the aspiring writer Helen, played by Goldie Hawn. It all begins when Madeline steals Helen's husband, the hapless and henpecked plastic surgeon Ernest, played by Bruce Willis, and Helen vows homicidal revenge. Seven years later, Madeline's star is fading, her assets are sagging, and her marriage to Ernest is a loveless charade which Ernest drowns in alcohol. What's worse, she discovers that Helen has never been more successful and sexy. In fact, she doesn't seem to age at all. Desperate to compete, Madeline finds herself drinking a secret potion offered by the mysterious Liesel von Rumen, the sultry and sassy Isabella Rossellini, which she claims will make Madeline reclaim her youth and live forever. Alas, this turns out to be all too true. No matter how many times the sparring divas attempt to kill each other, they stubbornly remain alive, but with increasingly grotesque injuries that Ernest has to cover up with his cosmetic surgery skills before their terrible secret is revealed to the world. Aha, it sounds very kooky. (laughs) (laughs) It does, it sounds like a really camp Halloween treat, so I'm looking forward to talking about it. Yes, it's going to be fun. It is, yes. I wonder if it would be even more fun if we had a special guest with us. Oh yes, and who should that be? Yes, let's find out. Welcome back. Joining us today is a writer, producer and director who's written episodes of Tales from the Crypt, Hannibal and Channel Zero, but is without doubt best known and loved among horror fans for creating one of the genre's most iconic and enduring characters, Charles Lee Ray, or Chucky to his friends and victims. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's the writer of all seven Child's Play movies and the director of the last three, ignoring a reboot we won't talk about. <laughs> I'm very pleased to welcome Don Mancini. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Welcome. It's very exciting to have you here. Well, after we first connected, when I uh, came upon your episode about the Fury, I thought, oh my God, this is awesome. Oh, (laughs) thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we had a ball with that episode. Jacob Gentry really blew our minds. Oh, yeah, I loved the discussion. Uh, It's a favorite of mine as well. And I was lightly jealous that he had beaten me to it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But his perspectives on it were really interesting but i'm glad we were able to do it with another film yes and you've picked a really fun film for us to discuss for our halloween special happy halloween by the way yeah happy halloween to you guys so how does the creator of chucky celebrate halloween well one thing i have been doing for the last few years is on twitter i get fans to tweet me pictures of their chucky related halloween costumes oh. and then i it sounds so grandiose and then i judge who is the best (laughs) (laughs) to whatever degree that means anything but it is fun and i have been doing that for the last few years in terms of more practical things you know i the neighborhood i live in in 
Los Angeles disappointingly doesn't have a lot of kids. Like when I first moved here, I was so excited about Halloween and I, because, you know, I have dolls from the movies. And so I put the dolls in the front window and lit them dramatically. And I think I had one of the Chucky movies on and the TV in the background and all this candy. And I think literally that there was like one trick or treater. (laughs) I was like all excited to be like, oh, I'm going to blow their minds and everyone in the neighborhood is going to be like, oh, this is great. And as it turned out, nobody cared. So I conduct my activities online now. Okay. (laughs) Sometimes, depending on my mood, sometimes I'll go to the parade and the party on Santa Monica Boulevard here in West Hollywood, which Uh, is really fun. Oh, that sounds amazing. Oh, yeah. I bet that's really fun. It's the same in my neighborhood. I don't think there are any children, but that doesn't stop me from buying a large bowl of chocolate every year and then just eating it myself. (laughs) Exactly. You can't let it go to waste. That would be a sin. (laughs) That would be a sin against the great pumpkin or whatever. (laughs) Definitely. Well, today's movie, the movie that you have chosen for us, I, I guess that could be a, a Halloween favorite, couldn't it? Although I think it was released around the time of Christmas originally. Wasn't oh. it? Actually, here in the States, it was released in the summer. It was, oh. it was released in July of 92. Right. But it has become kind of, at least in the gay world, <laughs> I can report it, the gay world in Los Angeles, Madeline and Helen are definitely Halloween icons and generally you tend to see every Halloween at least one or two, Uh, at least in my experience. uh, Yeah, I was reading in Variety about how this has become an icon among the LGBTQ community. And I've seen interviews with uh, all of the creators asking them why they think that might be, and they are all baffled. And I was wondering if you had a perspective on this. Well, I mean, in a way, when you look at the movie, it seems inevitable to me because Madeline and Helen are kind of drag queens in a way themselves, you know, (laughs) because in the story, they die many times over and they just sort of, you know, with some shellac and paint and some expert (laughs) attention from the best that Hollywood money can buy, then, you know, they're good to go. Um, It's funny that you said it. I've never seen any of the filmmakers address this issue. I knew David Kep at the time of the making of this film and, of course, knew him to be straight. So I don't know where this glorious gay sensibility (laughs) came from. But I think it's partly that there is that element of dress up. Mm. And what does it mean to look like a woman? You know, what does it mean to be a woman and a beautiful woman? And that is the film's obsession. That is the character's obsession. And, you know, I think it's so easy to to stumble horribly into generalizations talking about something like this, as if to say that, like, and that naturally is going to appeal to the entire gay community. Um, So I don't (laughs) mean to be making any sweeping proclamations, although I have a bit of an out in that I am an out gay man. So I feel like I can say things like that without offending anyone. (laughs) Anyway, I think it's that. And I think also the comedy horror vibe, which always seems to be something that gay audiences really cotton to. Mm. I would liken it to Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. And it's very melodramatic, theatrical 
characters that are larger than life as well. Yeah, they're divas. Helen and Madeline are divas. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> gay guys love a diva. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to say, when I first read that this had gone on to become this gay cultural icon, I was really confused because I saw this movie first when it came out in cinemas and I was a kid and a lot of it went straight over my head and I wasn't too impressed with it. And I haven't gone back to it since, like a lot of people, I expect. So watching it again for this podcast and it opens with Meryl Streep in this lavish 70s musical. <laughs> Songbird. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And she's doing the hustle and she's singing this song with lyrics like, I see me, actress, woman, star and lover, idol, goddess, shameless hussy. <laughs> I thought... Oh, I think I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I do kind of see a, a kind of dominatrix vibe to the film as well. Like all the male characters are kind of feeble and weaker than the female characters. Especially that character Liza with her henchmen of hunky Fabios. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> who look like Chippendale yes. dancers. Yeah, that was like yes. one of the things I am ready to deploy when we get to the section of the show about what is the most cliche moment. <laughs> 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 and one of them is the Fabio, isn't it? Yes. Really? I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, it's he's amazing. there in a couple of shots in the scene, I think, where Ernest, you know, wakes up where the swimming pool is. Uh... And Liesel von Ruman, Isabella Rossellini, is going to give him the potion, but he turns the tables. I say, Anyway, I think Fabio is in that scene. Uh... Yes, he's one of Tom, Dick or Harry. I'm not sure which one. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Tom, Dick, Harry, get the potion from him. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, he won't get far, not at his age. <laughs> <laughs> The mode of performance in this movie is pretty arch. Yeah. It's very much like a musical. Everything is really heightened. Yes. And it's quite a different role for Meryl Streep at this point in her career. I think a lot of people are used to, these days, used to her flip-flopping between being this Cruella de Vil, vampish, evil figure in something like The Devil Wears Prada or a ridiculous figure like Florence Foster Jenkins and then going back to doing something serious with Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg and being nominated for an Oscar again. But back in the 80s and 90s, she was mainly known for doing these really serious, heavyweight, dramatic roles, usually with an accent, and then she would win or be nominated for an Oscar. And then all of a sudden in 92, here she is in Death Becomes Her in this really camp kind of role. Mm. And I don't know, I just imagine it must have been a bit of a shock. It was a shock to me because I had never actually seen this film ah. before. And just knowing those actors really well, those three actors, Mill Street, Goldie Horn, and Bruce Willis as well. I was shocked to see Bruce Willis in this movie. Yeah, well, he'd done comedy before, but I'm not sure Meryl Streep had. Yes, just the year before, she had done a movie with Roseanne Barr called She-Devil. Ah. It didn't have the supernatural aspect, but it did have the heightened, arch, goofy aspect. So oh. Meryl Streep had shown her ability to do that. But I think, but generally, I think you're right. It was after being lauded in, you know, the sort of youthful part of her career for mostly doing quite serious stuff and receiving Oscars and Oscar nominations for that. Then she got into this little phase. Oh, also post Cards from the Edge, mm. which was 1990. That wasn't really as 
arch and goofy, but it was a very funny movie. But it was part of this trend that you're identifying where I think she leaned into that for the first time in her career, I imagine with some deliberation and intention. And I think she didn't really return to this comedic realm again until Devil Wears Prada, as you say. Regardless, it is so interesting to see her doing it, and I think she's expert at it, and I assume part of that is she's a stage-trained actress, and this is, you know, it's very theatrical mode (laughs) that everyone's in. I wonder if that gave her, she already had some of these tools in her kit. I imagine Meryl Streep would make a great guest host on Saturday Night Live. I don't think she's ever done it, but I always think of that as kind of a litmus test (laughs) of certain things. It's like, okay, this actor's good, (laughs) but can they handle that? And, And a lot of really good actors can't. They don't have that comic knack or whatever it is. Meryl Streep has it. Mm. And it's fun to see her deploy it in something like Death Becomes Her. It is, yeah. I mean, she really is hilarious in this movie. Mm. And Goldie is hilarious in a way. I mean, she was kind of known for kooky comedies, but they were of the kooky variety. She was always very cute and demure and innocent and naive. And that was where the fun came from. Yes. To see her as a, a total bitch was, I think, a revelation. And she plays it with real venom. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite shots in the whole movie, which shows her the madness in her, it's in that scene. It's when she's gained a lot of weight oh. and she's, you know, in an apartment filled with cats and frosting, <laughs> you know, cake frosting that she eats right out of the jars. Yeah. Anyway, because she hasn't paid her rent, they come and literally physically drag her out of the apartment while she's repeatedly watching this moment from Madeline's old movie where she gets strangled. She's so thrilled at the prospect of murdering Madeline. And so the very last shot of the scene is this close-up of Goldie's face just livid with this kind of madness as they drag her out of the frame. And it's just so funny. Yeah, it is. It's hilarious. I love in that scene as well that Alan Silvestri's music goes from being diegetic to being non-diegetic. When she does the rewinding. Yes, when she's rewinding, all of a sudden this horrifying moment is underscoring your realisation that poor Helen has really come untethered. Yeah, I agree. I I love that detail too. It's really cool. For me, one of my favourites is there's this repeating motif of Madeline and Helen planting kisses on each other. Ah, yes. And it seems almost like a marking your victim in some way. It seems almost vampiric. And and Meryl does it to her sort of dismissively in her dressing room at the beginning when she's got the upper hand and her face is in the foreground and eclipses Helen entirely. And then when the tables are turned years later, when Helen is fabulous and thin at her book launch and she plants a kiss on Madeline. It's almost like she's going to eat her. Her lips sort of quiver with this venomous rage. Mm. And we get that privileged perspective on her face that, of course, Madeline's not getting because it's, yes. you know, behind her shoulder after Goldie plants that kiss, <laughs> leaving the lipstick kiss on her flesh. Yeah. She has this narrow-eyed look of murderousness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a dialogue there. It's just just like saying, I've never blamed you. (laughs) You (laughs) So funny. 
Yeah, they're both a revelation in this, I think. And what I found particularly interesting looking back at contemporary reviews at the time, this film was pretty unanimously savaged by the critics. And the terms that they used in describing the two women are kind of interesting to me because they use words like shrill and too demanding. And for me, I'm just conscious of it being the kind of words that they use to criticise women who stand for public office. Yeah. Yes. How about that? (laughs) Yeah. Suddenly seeing a woman in power, in control, someone who is determined and prepared to do anything to get what they want. This is terrible. This is wrong. This should be condemned. (laughs) Um, Agreed. (laughs) I have a feeling if the movie came out now, it would have a better reception. I think. Yes. I think that in certain ways the movie was so ahead of its time and, you know, its effects certainly heralded a new trend in Hollywood with CG effects and these effects did win the Oscar, I think quite deservedly. I think also it's sort of look at the demands of women and, you know, where narcissism comes from. I think maybe people are more open to having those discussions now than they were then. Yes, I think you're right. I think so many of the films that we look at in the oubliette that didn't find their audience first time around, you look back at them now and you think, why didn't people get this? This makes so much sense in today's context. I think Hmm. if Death Becomes Her were released now, I think it would be a whole other story. Right. I I think that that's possible. You guys have talked about Miro and Goldie quite a bit, but... I was actually really surprised to see Bruce Willis play a role like this because only a couple of years earlier, he was in Die Hard, Die Hard 2, which are just, you know, oozing testosterone and manliness. And then he plays this kind of goofy, dopey, mortician guy that kind of wobbles around and doesn't really know what he's doing. And it's kind of, oh, it was really surprising for me. Yeah, I agree. I think he's hilarious. And it made me wish that he would have done more stuff stuff like that throughout his career because he had it in him. Did you guys know that originally cast in that role was Kevin Klein? Oh. Yeah, and something happened where he had to pull out and Bruce Willis was a very late, last-minute replacement. But I thought, as as you were saying, Dan, I thought he's great. I think he's really super funny and has great comedy chops, which I guess he showed on Moonlighting, but honestly, I didn't see very much of that show at all. I'm not very familiar with Mm, his career when he was on TV. No, I think his persona then was much more cool. Yeah. Yeah. Even when he first started segueing into acting when he was still in New York, he was like a cool bartender. I mean, I think he was like a bartender like the kind that Tom Cruise played in Cocktail. Like, literally, I think maybe Ah. Bruce Willis worked at the bar that inspired that or something. But I do know he was personification of a certain kind of New York actor cool. Yeah, Yeah. because he's very largely typecast these days as just the hardened cop slash detective slash special agent and yeah seeing him in such a goofy role was really uh quite refreshing yeah i've never seen him in a comedy this broad and yet he's really quite good at it i mean even ridiculous moments like the one where the the camera sweeps in low looking up at him and the thunder and lightning striking behind him and he shouts it's a miracle (laughs) when he finds Meryl Streep alive in the morgue and her response to that is the most bored slow blink yeah the way she rolls her eyes like this guy is so lame (laughs) 
It's hilarious. But yeah, so to see somebody who is usually cast in alpha male, masculine, heroic action movie roles, who is Mm. at the top of his game at that point in his career, huge box office draw, and to see him playing this emasculated alcoholic and playing it quite campy to be in step with the tone of the rest of the movie, quite a brave choice, I think. Yeah. yeah, particularly at that stage of his career, you could argue, I mean, I could imagine, I mean, who knows what goes on inside those bubbles, <laughs> but I can imagine his advisors thinking, hmm, like, like, cause you could argue this is great to show your breadth and range as an actor, but on the other hand, you could argue, is this going to jeopardize your alpha male status mm. in your bread and butter movies? Yeah. So mm. it probably was more great than we realized, perhaps. I think also it coming from Zemeckis mm. and with the star power, I think there was an expectation that it was going to be bigger than it ended up being. I think the movie was a decent base hit. I think certainly they didn't lose money, but it, you know, it wasn't, as you say, it wasn't reviewed particularly well and it wasn't a huge blockbuster. Mm. The original script. It's interesting. I'm not sure if you guys are aware, but there is a whole storyline that was cut out of the film. And then they also reshot the ending. There was this whole storyline with a character played by Tracy Ullman, Mm. who was a bartender at a bar that Ernest frequents. And they have this whole storyline going and it culminates at the end of the movie with them getting together. And the flash forward 37 years later at the end, it's not at Ernest's funeral. It's actually in a park where Madeline and Helen, who are still looking spectacular and young, they spy across the park, these pathetically old people. They go, oh, look at them. They're, oh, they think they're happy and like they look awful. And we see that it's Bruce Willis and Tracy Ullman, aged 90-something now, but very much in love and very happy. My point being, there was a strain of, not seriousness, that's not the right word, but another dimension in the original script that gave it a little more gravity in a way. Mm. It didn't seem quite as Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. as it ended up being. You know what I mean? I, I mean, that's not really an original observation. I think a lot of people have said that because, of course, Zemeckis was a producer on Tales from the Crypt, which was on HBO at the time. So there's a logic to that comparison. Uh-huh. The original movie had this aspiration anyway to touch at something poignant that I think the final movie decided not to even approach. I think that they just decided that that wasn't working and they cut it out and did that new ending, which I think is also great in a very different way when the girls fall down the stairs and shatter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in the face of all of this violence, they, with typical nonchalance, do you remember where you parked the car? Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> like body parts. <laughs> the final lines, yeah. <laughs> which, and I, you know, I love that too. I, you know, yeah. I can see the wisdom of doing what they did because that's pretty great too. I just, I wish that they would come out with a special edition Blu-ray 
Blu-ray or something that had that material on it. Yeah. Mm. And you can see in the trailer, I think there's one or two glimpses of Tracy Ullman in it. Yes, she's still in the trailer, fascinatingly That's enough. That's crazy. And she has released the script pages for her scenes on her website. Oh, really? Yeah, if you're interested in reading exactly how that played out and what her role was. It's very funny and also quite poignant and touching because, yes, it does end with Madeline and Helen together in some far-flung European destination, but utterly bored. Like, they're saying something like, where should we go next? Should we go to Venice? Oh, again? Uh, They're just bored with each other and with life in general. And then, yeah, you cut to the old couple that they're mocking and it's Bruce and Tracy. And And his hand is still young, though, right? yeah. I think the last shot moves in on his hand and the hand which Liesl had given him a drop of the potion oh, and made right. his hand forever young. Yes. <laughs> All the rest oh. of them got old. Yeah. So there's something poetic about that, again, that I think that the final movie just relinquished. Right, right. It right. did, yeah. Apparently test audiences did not like it ending on that note. And I could see, given the pitch that the rest of the movie ended up being, yeah. to suddenly have this touching true love and growing all gracefully together is the right way to go just felt too earnest after the rest of the movie whereas Goldie and Meryl shattering into a million pieces and looking for all the world like Sylvester Stallone's mother and (laughs) and wondering where the car is was just tonally a better fit for the rest of the movie yeah but I mean like it must be every actor's worst nightmare to play a character in a movie and just be completely cut out of it yeah she was very sad about it I would be. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I would be too, but I suppose it depends on the movie, right? Yes. There are probably a few movies where a couple of actors might think, phew, close call. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I do take issue with the finished film's ending. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because when they're memorialising Ernest's life at his funeral and they're describing him as this great humanitarian who gave so much to the world after 50, they list his achievements as a marriage counselling clinic, an AA chapter and a centre for the study of women. Uh So to me, that says that his quest to, quote, leave the world a better place than when he found it, suggests that he's just trying to help men deal with women because it's women that are the problem. Mm. So he's this great man who will always be remembered by this crowded room of friends who are mourning him for his great achievements, whereas the two women who broke the laws of nature to stay young and attractive, arguably for men, or at least because the system is rigged for men, are the butt of this horrible, embittered joke, which it is wickedly funny, but still, I don't know, it just leaves a bad taste in the mouth at the end of the movie. Mm. It certainly would seem slightly toned up in today's climate. Mm. I think I always took that as more specifically about the perennial battle of the sexes and the perennial inability of the sexes to understand one another. But certainly the very phrasing of that, the Center for the Study of Women, does sort of specifically seem to put the onus more on the women than the men. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I can kind of see your point. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it does give me pause compared to what the original intent of the ending was. 
It does feel as though Madeline and Helen don't come out of it as people to be admired at the end of the movie. They're a joke, aren't they? Well, I think quite the contrary. I think the movie's deliberate method is these people are horrible. (laughs) I think both Madeline and Helen are horrible people from the get-go. But I think the problem is that you're telling a story where it's a love triangle and the same one is the man. It's kind of interesting. It's, It's similar to what's going on in Gone Girl. Because you know in Gone Girl, it intends to be about similar things that we're talking about in terms of marriage and the the difficulty of men and women or you know spouses really knowing one another. Mm. But in the final analysis, what and, and, you know, spoilers for Gone Girl, anyone who's listening, <laughs> Amy, the wife turns out to be a psychopath. You know, I mean, she's evil. She's a murderous, evil devil woman. Mm. And it does kind of tip the scales a little bit. Like some people said the book was more balanced. Uh, But it's hard for me to imagine that because ultimately he is an innocent. You know, he's horrible and he's a cheater and he's duplicitous and shallow and all of that. But he's not a murderer, and she is. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, you kind of go, huh. It just kind of leaves you a little bit. Of, but yeah, but the woman's really the problem, right? <laughs> yeah. Mm. David Fincher does rather dryly say on his commentary track that he said he got a note from the studio saying that they were slightly concerned that the leads in that movie weren't very likable. <laughs> and then he just leaves it for a beat and then says, which concerned me greatly. (laughs) Clearly, he does not give a fuck. But I don't think anybody in that movie comes out particularly well. But yes, the woman is the problem again. Here you've got the two women that are entirely obsessed about their looks. And and on the one hand, you think that it's sort of empowering, they're taking charge, they're Mm. breaking the rules of a game that's rigged against them. But at the same time, the thing that drives Madeline into the arms of Liesel and her evil potion is being rejected by a man, mm. Adam Stork, her toy boy, who's oh, uh, yes. cheating on her with a younger model. Dakota. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. The name, Dakota. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing that sends her speeding to Liesel and her magic potion, and that I'm kind of disappointed by that. Mm. I don't know that I mind the women characters not being empowered or empowering or likable, mm. but I don't disagree with you about the sort of corner that the movie puts itself in, ultimately. And, you know, a corner that, again, feels particularly tone deaf in 2019. Yeah. But this movie was 1992, so its gestation was the dynasty TV show of the 80s. You know, that whole vibe. And even some of the costumes, particularly Madeline's costume, after she's died and Ernest makes her beautiful again and young, and she comes down the stairs and she's wearing that white thing. I don't even know what you call it. Is it a pantsuit? But it has these big shoulders. It's very 80s Alexis Carrington stuff. (laughs) I think there's a certain archetype, a sort of femme fatale archetype of the 80s and early 90s that I think that the movie is channeling, you know? Yeah. Where it was just like fun to see women being catty with one another. It was just like a thing that people liked 
watching. Yeah, the zaniness <laughs> and the goofiness of it, I don't think you really see in comedies anymore. It's just so over the top, but amazing to watch it unfold and all these larger-than-life characters interacting with each other. And yeah, the costumes were ridiculous. I mean, Liesel's costumes. <laughs> Is she even wearing clothes? <laughs> Not much. I know, I spent so much time trying to figure out that costume, actually. It's just like, is that her skin or is there some very sheer oh, yes. part? You know what I mean? There's just like, there are times you're just like, like what is going on with this costume? It's <laughs> yeah. fascinating, yeah. though. It's great. It's, the movie is all about surface and appearances. It's very apt. Mm, mm, mm. When she says to Meryl Streep, how old would you say I am? Don't flatter me. <laughs> Meryl Streep goes, I don't know. 37, and Isabella Rossellini just stares at her dagger. <laughs> <laughs> 20, 27, 24. <laughs> it's particularly hilarious as Isabella Rossellini was 40 at the time, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Don, what fascinating piece of trivia have you pulled from the gaping hole in Goldie Horn's midriff for us today? I am such a fan of Death Becomes Her that I included a direct homage to the film instead of Chucky. Homage to the specific scene when Helen is in the loony bin and talking to her psychiatrist who's complaining about how it's six months later and you're not even one pound lighter and we are still talking about Madeline Ashton. Uh-huh. <laughs> argument about it until finally the, the psychiatrist is desperately trying to get her patient to move on and she says you have to completely eliminate and before she can even finish the sentence Helen goes what? It's suddenly like she's inspired like what? And, and completely oblivious the doctor thunders on you have to completely eliminate and then Goldie Hawn goes you're right you're absolutely <laughs> right. It's really like the first time we see like a light with this fire of like I have to kill Madeline Ashton. And uh-huh. It's so funny. <laughs> and I just thought like how the mental health professional has inadvertently caused this <laughs> domino to fall that is going to lead to horrific death and tragedy. In Seed of Chucky, there's a scene where Tiffany, the doll Tiffany, who at this point in the saga considers killing to be an addiction and she's trying to kick it for the sake of her child, the seed of Chucky. <laughs> so in a moment of desperation, when she feels she really wants to kill Redmayne because he's such an asshole, she calls a recovery hotline and has one of those who's on first conversations where they're talking about two different things. The guy on the other end of the line is talking about getting pissed drunk and she's talking about <laughs> slaughtering people, but they find common ground and he finally says Rome wasn't built in a day because Tiffany's whole thing is like I'm in recovery and I can't have a slip because Rome wasn't built in a day and then she and I had her do the I, I shot it from the same angle I did the same performance the same everything where she goes you're right you're absolutely right oh, wow. <laughs> I'm using a little easter egg <laughs> First that's, of that's so cool and that's our trivia Woo.
Another aspect of the film we should definitely talk about are its effects, because of course the CGI effects are quite a breakthrough for 1992. Oh, incredible. Absolutely, yeah. Won the Oscar. Yeah, deservedly so. So this is where Industrial Light and Magic's fledgling computer graphics department attempt to create human skin Mm. for the first time. So not a liquid metal terminator or a water tentacle from the abyss. And it holds up really well. I was really taken aback by how effective it was. Mm. It looked really, really great. And normally when I watch early 90s CGI, I'm always cringing, but it (laughs) looked really, really cool. I agree. The two big showpiece effects scenes in the movie, which the first, of course, being when Madeline's head is backwards. Yeah. <laughs> she, she plays that entire dialogue scene, walking around this room and delivering dialogue <laughs> with expert comic timing with her head on backwards, <laughs> slowly realizing what's going on with her. And it, again, the movie's consistent method of like having the characters react to the most outrageously horrific bodily violence with either casual nonchalance in the case of the women or in Ernest's case, he's trying to make himself feel like it's no big deal, but it's horrifying to him. Yeah. I think there's really something wrong with your blast. <laughs> yeah, and a big girly scream when Goldie Horn is blown clear across the courtyard. <laughs> yeah, with a shotgun, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The interesting thing about that is that the direction they decided to take with the wound on Goldie is that it's almost like she's made out of solid plastic. The hole is like this glossy black charred hole. There's no blood and guts hanging out or bits of her intestines drooping on the floor. She's just like a piece of Lego that's been melted in the sun or something. (laughs) Is that just the limitations of the technology at the time or is that definitely a tonal choice? because although the film is quite detailed in its depiction of these injuries, it's not grotesque. No. I recently watched Seed of Chucky, and there's a scene where Tiffany is disembowering Redman and his intestines are just falling on the floor. I've never seen steam come off organs before in the movie. <laughs> like, it's a really nice touch. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm glad you liked it. But what was the segue from Death Becomes Her? Oh, no, no. I was just talking about guts in horror movies. Oh, and, just guts. And, oh, yeah. 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 yeah, got it. <laughs> I think this movie oozes that sort of Tim Burton over-the-top gothic sort of vibe to it. Mm. Kind of similar to Beetlejuice when the couple are like stretching their faces in all these really grotesque ways. It's gross, but not in a gruesome horror way, more in a ridiculous comedic way. And it it does it well in this movie. Absolutely. In Dark Shadows, Tim Burton in the final sequence, he's like paying deliberate homage to Death Becomes Her there. Oh. Eva Green, Angelique, like there's one moment where she scratches the side of a pillar, like her fingernails being claws, which is exactly what Meryl Streep does. Oh. <laughs> when she's listening from behind the pillar and Goldie Hawn says she was a homewrecker and she was a 
bad actress. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Eva Green does the same thing in Dark Shadows. Oh. She has the same thing with the vulnerability of her body. You know, her body starts to shatter and she gets her head spun on backwards while she's fighting with Barnabas Collins. Oh. Anyway, interesting to see the influence thread its way through the decades. Yeah, right. But I think you're right. Conrad, that it was the choice with the whole, I think it's a tonal choice, and I think it's also a deliberate bid to avoid an R rating. I think that this was an expensive movie with a lot of big stars in it, and it was intended for a family audience. Mm. So they needed that PG-13, so I can imagine there were a lot of discussions and design meetings about exactly how far they could go with that and how what it could look like to be simultaneously convincing and stylized so that you buy it, but still not offend. <laughs> mm, yeah, sure. It's interesting hearing you reference Angelique from Dark Shadows there, because I heard another podcast where you talked about the original Dark Shadows TV series as being one of your earliest childhood memories, probably your first horror experience seeing that on TV as a kid. Yeah. And in another podcast, I heard you talking about Tony Scott's The Hunger from 1983. And I'm kind of detecting a common theme here. These sort of beautiful, immortal women who are using men as their playthings, which I think is kind of interesting. Uh, Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting subject matter, especially for horror. I Mm. think both The Hunger and Death Becomes Her are both about narcissism Mm. in a way and the price of that. Yeah. One is more horrific, one is more comic. Yeah. But it's about hubris and making deals with the devil and how that will bite you in the ass. Yeah, and the terrifying reality of immortality. I love Bruce Willis's realization of what that really means. What if I get bored? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I just love how tightly constructed the comedy is. I mean, certainly in the first two thirds of this movie, it's so well constructed and there's so much foreshadowing neatly woven into every exchange. Like the first time that all three characters are introduced to each other and Helen is introducing her fiancé, plastic surgeon Ernest, to Madeline. Madeline looks at him and says, Tell me, Doctor, am I starting to need you and there's this rumble of thunder on the soundtrack Mm. and it's just such perfect foreboding of Helen's fears that she will lose her fiancé to the flirtatious Madeline who's stolen every man that she's ever had Ernest is oblivious of course and Madeline is just maybe worried that she needs work doing so it's just a perfect summation of all three characters' main motivations in one scene. Yes. And straight after that, you have another wonderful bit of foreboding where Helen is talking about how she's worried that Ernest won't pass the Madeline test and she's going to lose him. And she says, I don't know what I would do if I lose you. And it's punctuated by a cat meowing and jumping off the sofa. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's such a great visual clue to the audience. Like, this is what's going to happen. She's going to turn into a crazy cat lady. (laughs) (laughs) I do love how uh, swift 
they are with pushing the plot along, mm. especially at the start, and using that with comic timing as well. So when Ernest is trying to convince Helen, like, I, I would never do anything with Madeline, and then next, <laughs> next shot, it's the marriage of Ernest and Madeline. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> Another great thing is that they carry over from scene to scene there Helen's prop. You know, she's twisting her hands on that handkerchief. (laughs) In the first scene, she's just doing it for the whole scene sort of frantically. And then in the second scene, when we see that she's eavesdropping on the margins of Madeline and Ernest's wedding, we see that she's causing her own fingers to bleed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then of course she's watching her being strangled with a very similar object, I think. So it <laughs> yes. all seems to be so carefully constructed until the end. And then at that point, it loses momentum, I think. I think part of what's going on is that for the first two acts of the movie, as crazy as it gets and as spectacular as it gets with its visual effects and body horror elements, it's still always focused on the characters and the dialogue. It's a very dialogue-based movie. And I think that one of the reasons it has endured is because there is so much great quotable dialogue from that movie. Mm -hmm. But in the third act, it becomes a lot of frantic running around Lethal's house. You know, when they're trying to tile the loose ends of the plot, which now require them to enlist Ernest's help, what are we going to do? We have to get him to take the potion. So it just becomes a lot of running around in that house. And I think that lets a little of the energy out of the movie. Mm. And I think that's also where it's at its most tales from the crypties, mm. because there's all that climbing around on the roof of the house and Ernest dangling. And, and there are funny gags throughout, pretty much all of them being the cameos of all of the dead stars who we are now given to understand <laughs> have all faked their deaths. <laughs> and they're all still living amongst us, like Jim Morrison and Elvis and Jim Dean and all that. And all of that is really funny to see, but it's like, I kind of wish somehow they had stirred their ingredients a little bit more so that that could have resulted in dialogue scenes with those, you know, what might an encounter between Madeline and Elvis be? Yes. I don't know. It just seems like there's fun <laughs> stuff to be had rather than just having them come on and then yield off, you know? Yeah, and there was probably more to be done in terms of satirizing Hollywood and this obsession with eternal youth. It's there and it's very funny and it fits into this whole early 90s re-examination of the obsession with youth, beauty and wealth that we got from the Reagan era. All of a sudden you have movies like The Player that are just exposing the horrible, hollow artifice of all of this. Death Becomes a very much falls into that tradition, but it doesn't really go far beyond the surface level. And as you say, I would love to have delved into those characters more and actually got some sense of what does it really mean that Elvis is so bored that he's popping up in public occasionally just to create a bit of a stir? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It could have definitely gone much, much more satirical, for sure. Yeah. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Movie Awards. It's everybody's favourite segment of the pod, the Moobly Awards, where we nominate a bunch of our favourite beautifying parts of the film in a number of eternally youthful categories. 
best quote. So my favorite line in the film it has got to be when Madeline is with Liesl and Liesl has given her her first taste of the potion and then Madeline says bottoms up and she drinks the whole thing at which point Liesl says to her now a warning and yeah. Madeline answers now a warning <laughs> uh, just cuts through so quickly I have always loved that line and Meryl Streep's delivery of it and just the whole context. Now a warning. Now a warning. Yeah. <laughs> I use it in real life as much as possible. And you'd be surprised oh. how, <laughs> how often it is germane. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my favorite was uh, when, when Helen goes to seduce Ernest and she's wearing that killer red dress. And she says, mm. you're a powerful sexual being, Ernest. And he says, I am. And then she says... Yes, you are. If I never told you this before, it's because I wasn't the sort of girl before who could say the word sexual without blushing. Well, I can now. Sexual. Central. <laughs> sexy. Sex. Sex. And it's just... <laughs> the way to a man's heart is just sex. <laughs> And another great moment from Alan Silvestri too, because his string section just comments on every single word that yeah. comes out of her mouth. It slowly goes from the violins all the way down to the double basses, so you can tell exactly where his response is coming from as that progresses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that stuff yeah. where the music is going doo doo yeah. doo <laughs> accompany each. <laughs> it gets lower and lower and lower. <laughs> Most nineties moment. I think maybe Goldie's fat suit, because I think at the time those the combination of makeup effects and costuming to add so much weight onto an actor and do it in such a way that was so believable that I remember that that was new enough at the time, you know, and we first see her from behind. So I think at first we're not even necessarily certain that this is Goldie Hawn because she's so enormous. But then as she trudges through her cat-filled apartment and opens up the cabinet to reveal all of her frosting that she just eats from the can and turns around to face the camera. I remember the audience's shocked guffaw there because it was just truly a game changer and something that we've seen a lot more throughout the years in Hollywood. I mean, one that comes to mind is John Travolta's look as Edna Turnblad in the Hairspray movie, which I thought oh, was also a, a great one. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Very much so. Uh, mine was more flippant. I think the most 90s thing in this movie is Bruce Willis looking like he gives a shit, which uh. we haven't seen <laughs> for about 17 years. I know it's a cliche to say that about Bruce Willis, but he had many lively roles like Hudson Hawk and so on and so forth in the 90s and all the way up to The Sixth Sense in 99, where you get the feeling that Shyamalan said to him, can you sort of play this sort of downbeat and fairly quiet? And he's sort of adopted that approach ever since because mm. I've never seen him as animated as he is here and certainly not in the last 10, 20 years. Yep, I agree. Right. Bruce Willis just plays Bruce Willis now. I think you win that one. <laughs> Best hair or costume? 
Mine would be Meryl Streep's black leotard and this cloud of pink chiffon that oh, she puts on yes. over the top of it. She looks like candy floss. It's just such a strange outfit. That she's Is that wearing. the outfit she gets thrown down the stairs? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And she picks up this pink translucent material and the next time you've seen it, she seems to have fashioned a blouse out of it. I, I really don't know how she does it. It's incredible. She has that great line where she's like looking at herself at the mirror and she goes, my God, it's back. <laughs> and I think, I think she's referring to her ass specifically at heart. Oh, yes. But it's so funny. <laughs> And Dan, how about you? I would actually like to point out the worst costume in all its oh. uh, grandeur is Ernest at the start, where he's he's got this really scraggly, disgusting moustache and these oversized kind of accountant glasses, and he just looks like a pedophile to me. I don't know. <laughs> it's not a good look. Favourite scene! The throwing Madeline down the stairs scene. Just hands down my favourite scene. <laughs> I just, I love the build-up as well because she's really irritating Ernest and he finally snaps and he, he grabs her by the neck and she's he's strangling her. She's just sort of teetering at the top of the staircase with high heels, just impossibly balanced. Uh, and then the final push where, where she says the, the final lines that just push him over the edge and he pushes her over the edge. That first neck snap, oh my God. Ooh, that sound effect is, uh, will haunt yeah. me for I love how over the top it is as well because she falls down those stairs. I measured it for 11 seconds. Oh, wow. 11 different shots. That's one long staircase. Yeah. (laughs) I love that about the scene, though. It's just so suspended in time so that by the time she finally makes her final smash on the floor and she's completely (laughs) fucked up. Yeah. But then when next we see Ernest still waiting up there, his index finger is still extended. You know, the finger that he pokes, you know, her neck her chest to get her to fall um, is still extended. Yes. I just, I love, I love that detail. Great touch. And Don, how about you? I would say Sidney Pollock scene as the ER ah. doctor who uh, attends to Madeline <laughs> when Ernest rushes her into, I think it's L'Hospital de Beverly Hills. <laughs> Uh, oh, they come, you know, and there's a valet parking in front. Um, and anyway, Sidney Pollock, you know, he's just very chipper. He goes, "What happened, kids?" With the thermometer in her mouth, which is a hilarious prop. Meryl Streep is so brilliant; she can just ring great effects just on little things like that. So, with the thermometer in her mouth, she's able to go. I fell down the stairs. It makes her sarcasm somehow even more pointed at Ernest, more anticipatory. Yes, yes. But just to see Sidney Pollock's panic rising as the scene is going on, as she's starting to realize how fucked up her body is, and, mm. and just the way he handles the props, you know, the stethoscope when he's yeah. looking at her heart. 
And so he walks over to the trash can and the way he deliberately throws the stethoscope away as if to like, I'm not accepting this yet. And he goes back and he, and you know, and as we, anyone who's seen the movie knows how it ends. It goes all the way to his death. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a funny like one scene nervous breakdown that we see someone have right before our eyes i always find that very very funny yeah, yeah. most cliche horror moment my cliche was when Isabella Rossellini is persuading Ernest to take the potion. It's, I mean, it's fair and good that there is a storm raging outside, but for some reason it's indoors as well and blowing her hair at <laughs> yeah. that point. <laughs> I remember Stephen King commenting on this in relation to Firestarter, that he did not ah. understand why Drew Barrymore's hair <laughs> blew whenever she <laughs> set something on fire. But yeah. <laughs> Pyrokinesis is not an exact science. Oh, yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> Best special effect. I would say just Madeline's neck break, yeah. head snapped over. Like it's just a marvel to really witness CGI that good from 1992. I was awestruck by it. It's it's amazing. I think it's also just such a brilliant concept. There's a simplicity about it, but just the whole idea of a neck cartoonishly twisted around into yeah. the head facing backwards. It's just, <laughs> I, I think it's sort of in an image encapsulates what that movie is about and what makes it appealing. Mm. Mm. It's whimsical look at death yeah. in a very original cutting edge way, which could only be yes. accomplished in a film. Mm. Yes, very true. And sadly, Meryl Streep hated it. She hated doing it entirely. Really? Which is oh. such, yeah. Although I, I get it. I get how that could be tedious performing that. But I imagine her reaction may have been different if the movie had been more successful. Because then it probably just would have right. seemed more worth it, you know, to have gone through all of that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe that's it. Yeah. But if only she had known, you know, 25 years later, three guys on three different continents with the discussion. It would have given her strength. Favorite sound effect. The sound of Madeline's breasts being reinflated. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> when she's first taking the potion and then the action segues to she's like in the foyer and she walks up to the mirror and she sees herself at first she looks disappointed and then without a cut as she's watching her reflection in the mirror she just grows younger and younger to the point that suddenly her breasts are going fuck <laughs> <laughs> like they're being inflated with an air compressor like oh, like you're inflating a tire on your bicycle so good and apparently that's just uh i think it was her makeup guy just standing behind her just pushing them into position oh really, really? <laughs> that's amazing yeah. that's so good yeah the ass is all her she did that herself with, uh, a bit of yoga is that true? Yes, yeah. She it was a bit of yoga and she got the buttocks to go up like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is a great bit of trivia. <laughs> oh, mine is a, a fairly silly one, but it actually refers back to the scene that 
you were talking about earlier, Don, which is Sidney Polak's cameo in the emergency room. I do love when he goes to get his second stethoscope, which is bigger. We're going to need a bigger stethoscope. <laughs> he taps it experimentally to see if it's working. And you get this sound like he's tapped on a live mic. It's like really oh, loud. Yeah. <laughs> so you get this sort of <laughs> subjective audio moment for him where he's startling himself hitting this thing. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I love that moment too. Most funniest moment. Don, you've mentioned it already, but Meryl Streep's claws going down that pillar. Oh. You've had no reaction to she's a home wrecker, she's an awful person, she destroyed your life, and she's a bad actress. And at that point, the claws come out. I was wetting myself. I had I just did not remember that moment at all, and it, I thought it was hilarious. Mm. Agreed. <laughs> Don, can you pick one, do you think, or is this too hard? There's so many little funny things, like when they're in the limousine riding to Helen's party together, and Ernest is breathing, and Madeline says, Could you just not breathe? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not, yeah. like, not my, funny, my favorite scene or the funniest thing because there's, so, there's so many, but there are just so many extremely funny moments just tossed throughout this film. One interesting thing is Meryl Streep, I don't know whether you guys have ever noticed this before, like all actors, I think she has certain devices that she mm -hmm. sometimes employs. And one of her favorites is, and you'll see this, she does this several times in every movie she does, she'll say a sentence and you think that she's come to the end of the sentence, but she hasn't. And she goes on. Oh. Um, she uses it to great comic effect, at least one time that I can remember in Death Becomes Her, when Ernest and Helen come into her dressing room backstage at the show at the beginning, and they're getting reacquainted, and introductions are around, and this is my fiance, we're getting married, and Meryl Streep says, well, I am so happy for you both. <laughs> just, just this slight ellipsis before both, and she kind of like turns slightly condescendingly down. So happy for you both. <laughs> it's genius. And I think that's our Mooblies. Yes. Cool. So it's time for our final verdict. Should Death Becomes Her be given Liesel von Roman's special potion, rejuvenated back to its youth and released into the world to be beautiful forever? Or should it be blown clear across a courtyard with a shotgun and <laughs> left for dead face down in a fountain? Don Mancini, you are our special guest today. What is your final verdict? Well, you know, I think it's predictable. My verdict absolutely is that this movie needs wings with which to fly. It's delightful, <laughs> and uh, I think the world is a better place for having death become sure in it. Yes. <laughs> Dan, would you agree? Yes, yes, yes. I wholeheartedly agree. I, I can't believe I've never seen this movie, but I, I don't know whether I would have appreciated it as, as a kid. I think as uh, older, more mature guy. I, I really love the subtle humor and, and just the 
deeply disturbing, morbid comedy as well. It's <laughs> and the melodrama and the, and the theatricalness. It's ah, oh, it's amazing. It's a it's amazing to sort of witness a movie like this because I I do feel like movies aren't made like this anymore. Yeah, that's what I I was thinking just as you were saying that. I, you don't certainly big budget, but even little budget black comedies. I think historically they they often fail at the box office. Yeah. Mm. So I know that people are afraid of them and this movie wasn't a huge blockbuster, but I, last I heard, I, there's some plans to do a musical of it. I seem to recall reading that somewhere recently, which I think is a great idea. I think it would make a great musical. Yeah. Oh yes. It says, uh, I'm reading here, Kristen, Chenoweth? Oh, right, Kristen Chenoweth, yeah. Ah, yes. Was announced to be starring in a Broadway musical adaptation. I mean, it's the material really suits that, I think. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. With all those costumes. I mean, they've already got their first Tony nominee with I See Me. (laughs) 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 Replicate exactly what it is in the film. Yes, it would be a showstopper. So, Conrad, final thoughts on Death Becomes Her? Well, I I definitely am not going to go against the grain. I do think it's problematic when viewed through the lens of 2019. Certainly, I don't think the ending is as strong as the first two acts. But given what a brilliant first two acts it is, Mm -hmm. how intricately it's set up and how clever the comedy is, and how wonderful it is to see Meryl Streep, Bruce Willis and Goldie Hawn playing at this level and being so camp and ridiculous. It's just a treat to watch. And I think you're right, Dan. When I first saw this as a teenager, I did not appreciate it at all. Hmm. I didn't get it. And I think once you get a little bit older, um, (laughs) the the themes of of aging and beauty and so on, yeah, I think you appreciate it more. It's, It's aged like a fine wine, I think death becomes her, and I think everybody should take a sniff of its bouquet. So yes, let's let it go. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Don, for joining us. How can our listeners follow your future projects on social media? I'm old, so I'm not on Instagram, but I am on Twitter. It's Real Don Mancini, and I'm on Facebook as well. Is there any news that you could share about the Chucky TV show? You know, we're working on the TV show now and more movies as well as the TV series. We're just trying to figure oh, out wow. how to integrate them. Do we want to do them simultaneously or after? Yeah, so I feel incredibly lucky. <sighs> Amazing. Well, we'll be following you and we're definitely very excited about the forthcoming Chucky TV series, which is going to be on sci-fi. Yes. Ooh, can't wait. Yeah, especially after The Curse of Chucky, because the ending of that suggests a really interesting direction for the series to go in. So... Should be fun. Mm-hmm. And what's coming up for us next episode, Conrad? Well, it's going to be a patron's choice episode. We've been collecting nominations from our patrons for movies they'd like us to cover, and they're all on the Oubliette Roulette. Oubliette Roulette. I'll just go get it. Ah, oh, this thing is getting heavier. God, it gets rattlier every time. <laughs> all right. Shall I give it a spin? <laughs> go for it. Ooh. Oh, come on, come on. Oh, what's it going to be? It's the faculty. Oh, 
Oh, 90s horror, my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> and this was chosen by our patron, Lena. Thank you. Yes, Lena, huge fan of the 1998 American science fiction teen horror film written by Kevin Williamson, directed by Robert Rodriguez and starring Elijah Wood, Josh Hartnett, Jordana Brewster, Clea Duval, Robert Patrick, Piper Laurie, Famke Jansen, Salma Hayek, my God, and John Stewart. That's a cast and a half. <laughs> mm, wow, all those 90s heartthrobs. Should be fun. Indeed. So if you would like to be a patron and have an opportunity to suggest movies for our Oubliette Roulette episodes, head on over to Patreon, where you can support us for as little as a dollar. Or $5 will get you all that bonus stuff, mm. which we are currently updating with a bunch of bloopers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really embarrassing stuff too. <laughs> but hilarious. It is, yeah. I'd forgotten about some of them. Enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> And don't forget, you can also follow us on all social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Movie Oubliette. You can email us at movie.oubliette.gmail.com. And please rate and review us on your podcast app. You don't know how much that helps us out. It does, yes, because we're not all famous like Don here. But we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> So, Don, it's been fantastic having you with us today. Thanks for joining us. It was so great to do this. Thank you so much for asking me. And we'll have to find another title to do sometime in the future. Oh, that would be amazing. Until then, happy Halloween, everyone. Yes, bye for now. Take care. Goodbye. <laughs> review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie, Juliet. Do you remember where you parked the car?